Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and that can be found on page 1025. So Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were who were from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Judy, thanks very much. Should we pray? Father, we thank you for your wonderful, wonderful words. And we pray as we just look at this very short portion of it this morning that you would speak to us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How does an author get your attention? Maybe a journalist crafts a punchline like this. Oh, is there, a, is there one in there of a newspaper headline? Ah, oh. Maybe you saw the newspaper headline this week. I think it was in the Daily Star. Houston, we, W-E-E, have a problem. And then the subtitle, um, astronauts told to cross their legs as the toilet on the rocket was out of action. Bet that once you want to read the article, doesn't it? Or maybe it's um, a blogger who posts a provocative question and then says, I'm going to answer this question. Or, a, or an Instagrammer who uploads um, an unignorable video. In a world of limitless choice, we might think that it's more important than ever for an author to grab someone's attention. But grabbing our attention and reeling us in is nothing new. And it's what Luke, the author of our text this morning, is wanting to do for us, grab our attention. I guess many of us, when we get to a book, we look at the preface and we just flick through it. We think, this is going to be boring. I'm not going to read this. But paying attention to a preface often pays dividends later on. It gives us a framework to understand the rest of the book. If we skip it, we may find ourselves all at sea or getting totally the wrong end of the stick. And in the run-up to Christmas over this next month as a church, we're just going to look through Luke chapter 1, which I think in many ways is a neglected chapter in preaching. Perhaps we pull bits of it out for occasional Christmas services, but we don't usually run through the whole thing from beginning to end chapter 1. And today we're just going to focus in on these first few verses, this uh, preface. But don't worry, it's not a dull, boring thing that we ought to skip over. It's actually brimming with excitement, meaning, and purpose. There are four lessons in four verses, whether we're Christian people or not. I hope they're going to be helpful for us. I hope they're going to encourage us to get his book off the shelf and start reading. Here's the first. God's promises kept. God's promises Kept. Verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke wants us to be crystal clear. God in the past made promises to his people, and now in Luke's own day, he has kept those promises, fulfilled them. This week, world leaders made promises of all sorts, didn't they, up in Glasgow? To end deforestation by 2030, to, to cut methane emissions, but... Um, Deliberate pun alert, will those promises be kept or amount to a whole lot of hot air? Chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel breathes this atmosphere of God keeping his promises. 
So consider what the angel of the Lord says to the parents of John the Baptist. Over the same page, verse 17. It says, He will go on in the, before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's an echo, a deliberate echo of the very last words of the Old Testament, a promise made by the prophet Malachi that he would, that God would send an Elijah-like prophet, someone to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And Luke chapter 1 says John the Baptist is the answer to that promise. Or think again about uh, Mary, so perhaps flick over the page, Jesus' mother. The Lord tells her that her unborn son is going to inherit the throne of his father David and be king forever. That's a promise made in in, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then Mary sings that famous song, the Magnificat, and at the end of that song, chapter 154, she says, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Or uh, flick again the page into chapter 2. Jesus' mother and father meet Simeon in the temple in Jerusalem. Two months after Jesus uh, has been born, chapter 225 says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for God to keep all his promises. And then Simeon sees Jesus, the little baby Jesus, across the temple courts. He goes up to his parents, he takes him in his arms, and he says, "What chapter 229, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, we live in a world of broken promises, don't we? And it is very easy to become cynical, to shrug our shoulders and say, whatever, I'll believe it when it happens. But Luke's book is all about God's promises kept. God never forgets. He always acts. In fact, God cannot help but keep his word. It's impossible for him to break his promise. Some of Jesus' very first disciples had to learn that lesson. So they were walking home from Jerusalem three days after Jesus had died, after he'd been crucified. And they see Jesus there along the road, but they're kept from recognizing him. And he comes up alongside them and he says, what are you talking about? Why do you look so sad? And they say, they crucified him. But we had thought that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, we thought God was keeping his promise with Jesus, but he hasn't. We thought he was the answer to the promise. And Jesus says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you know what? Even when I died, God was keeping his promises. Luke's gospel story is the story of God's promises kept. But is it a true story? Second, history handed down. Verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I'm currently reading um, this book. It's a biography of Lenin. I'm genuinely not trying to be pretentious. Um, I've always found history interesting. I've always regretted not studying it at school. And Russian history in particular has always kind of fascinated me. It's a very interesting book about a man who undoubtedly changed the world. And the author, Robert Service, is an expert historian. He's undertaken meticulous research, gone into Russian archives, 
read letters and memoirs written by Lenin's surviving sisters and brother. And so he can describe Lenin's childhood and early adult life because he's got access to those sources. And the same sort of process was behind the writing of Luke. So it says in verse 1, many have already started to write things down. That probably refers at least to Mark's gospel, but also other written records. But even before anything was written, traditions were handed down by word of mouth. And just as the author of um, the book I'm reading isn't embarrassed to use eyewitness evidence, neither is Luke ashamed to say, I'm not an eyewitness, but I have spoken to those who were eyewitnesses. Others did see Jesus' life and ministry with their own eyes, and they passed on the message about him. Uh, Nowadays, we can go online, social media, and we can watch countless videos taken from the, the events that are happening, all captured on smartphones, and we can feel like we're really there. But we know, don't we, it's not just visual evidence that is convincing. It's also spoken word. We could listen to someone who was literally there, and we could trust them too, especially if what they said corroborated with what other people said who were also there. And Luke says that that is the kind of evidence I'm handing down to you. But how can we know that he's not making it up? Well, partly because Luke isn't the only book he wrote. He also wrote the book of Acts, a sequel. And in fact, he writes himself into that book of Acts. He appears in it because he's a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul, he wasn't an eyewitness either, but he definitely knew and spent plenty of time with people who were, people like the apostle Peter, or Jesus' brother James. And Luke had plenty of time, spending time with Paul, to cross-examine him, to say, hey, what did Peter say about this? What did James say about that? But even Luke's gospel itself has the marks of eyewitness evidence. Have you ever wondered how we could know what happened that very first Christmas? How have you ever wondered, how can we know that this isn't just a fairy story? Well, listen to what Jesus' mother said, um, or listen to how Jesus, Luke describes Jesus' mother's reaction. So chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart, uh, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Surely Mary remembered those conversations she'd had with Elizabeth, her cousin, John the Baptist's mother. Surely Mary wasn't about to forget the angels and the shepherds. And surely as things, as time went by and as she began to understand things more, it would be a bit odd, wouldn't it, if she didn't pass those things on to other people, perhaps even to Luke himself. Or remember again the story of the two disciples walking home from Jerusalem three days after Jesus had died. Luke tells us that one of them was named Cleopas. Why? It adds nothing to the story. Probably because the people who received Luke's gospel knew who Cleopas was. They could have gone up to him and said, hey, did that really happen? Has Luke got that right? Luke's gospel is history handed down. But so what? Not everyone wants to read a biography of Lenin, who died 100 years ago, uh, even if he did change the world. Why should we read a biography of Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, Thirdly, an accurate account. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. So let's imagine Luke there. He's sitting in his study. He's got a copy of Mark's Gospel on one side of his desk. He's got a whole load of other written accounts on the other side. He's got um, eyewitness transcripts coming out of his filing cabinet piled up on the floor. But he decides, I need to write something too. But what is he writing? Biography, a history book, some sort of ancient Wikipedia page? Or is Luke writing something altogether different? Well, in this one verse, he says four different things about what he's writing. Just look with me briefly at them. First of all, he says, I've checked out the facts. I myself have carefully investigated. That word literally means followed along closely. Now, I don't know if uh, you're a fan of Homeland. It's a picture of Carrie and Saul up there. Homeland basically kept us going through lockdown, all seven series. There she is. She's an absolute genius. She's got all of the data up on the wall, all color-coded. She's followed everything along. Luke says, I've done that kind of work. I've investigated. I've investigated everything, second, carefully. He double-checks his sources, proofreading what he's written. He's accurate, but also exceedingly thorough. I myself have carefully investigated everything. He leaves no stone unturned. He's not like an academic stuck away in an ivory tower. He's more like an investigative journalist, following the scent, tracking down leads, all the way back, finally, to the beginning, the beginning. And I wonder if that final characteristic of his work gives us a hint about why he bothered writing whenever the people had already written. Because he had information from the beginning that no one else had passed on. Do you know... There would be no angels and shepherds at Christmas time if it wasn't for Luke's gospel. Luke's the only one who tells us about that. We've got him to thank for this accurate account. There was an archaeologist in the last century who began his work in the Middle East pretty convinced that Luke was not an accurate historian. But as he literally dug stuff up from the ground, he, along with many others, were proved wrong time and time again. Uh, This is his conclusion. Luke is a historian of the first rank. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their nature at greater length, while he touches lightly or omits entirely that which was valueless for his purpose. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. That quote there just reminds us that Luke is writing more than history. He has a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? It's it's history and theology. Let me show you how the whole of the book, uh, the whole of his work is sewn together. So there we've got the Gospel of Luke. There we've got the book of Acts. The end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome. It's the center of the known world. The beginning of Acts and the end of Luke recount events in Jerusalem. It's the center of the story. And the beginning of Luke, even though it's kind of in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, is also global in scale. So Luke is the only gospel writer who names Roman emperors. You know those famous words from the Christmas reading? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You see, Luke is claiming that that Christianity, the story of Jesus, is not just some myth that that has no connection with the real world. It is for the world. That's the global breadth, the theological breadth of his story. But it's also centered 
on those events that happen in Jerusalem, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an accurate account, history and theology. But why did he bother? Why did he bother? Fourthly and finally, certainty about Christ. He says, for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus literally means lover of God. Could um, represent any of us. And he already knows a lot. He has been taught. But for one reason or another, Luke decides he needs more assurance. And so he writes his gospel. And Luke's gospel can do the same thing for you and me today. It can give us certainty about Jesus. In fact, not just Luke's gospel, but the whole New Testament, in fact, the whole Bible is here to give us certainty about Christ. You know, Luke's gospel sits alongside those other three eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John. It provides the historical background for, or sorry, the book of Acts provides the historical background for all of the New Testament letters, and it helps us understand the Old Testament too. I wonder if we think of the Bible of Luke or the New Testament like that. Maybe some of us here this morning think it's just a children's storybook. Maybe others think the Bible is a dangerous book. It's all about, it's, it, it represents a danger to rational, tolerant 21st century thinking. If we're Christian believers this morning, we might be overly familiar with God's Word. We might, it might not be the first place we go when we're feeling shaky. But whoever we are, God is speaking to us just through those four little verses at the beginning of Luke, saying you can have certainty about Christ. That is what Lucy has come to discover. It's what she and Ed and Ian and Anna are praying for their children, that they would discover certainty about Christ. What about you and me? Do we want to have certainty about Christ? If not, if so, why not perhaps recommit ourselves to reading the Scriptures day by day, saying to Jesus, please meet me in the Scriptures. That's what those two men walking home to Jerusalem discovered. Uh, eventually, Jesus revealed himself to them, and then they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us whilst he opened the Scriptures to us? He meets us in his Word if we come to him. Well, perhaps um, you might like to come. We're doing a course in January called Hope Explored. And it's just three Monday evenings. It's all about hope and meaning and purpose. If you're a regular member here, why not start thinking, praying? Who could you invite along to that? It's taken from Luke's gospel, in fact. Isn't it amazing just what you can learn from the preface of a book? And isn't that often the way? A little blurb on the back, a few quotes of commendation. We think, I'm going to read this book. And then there's a whole world to discover once we actually sit down and start reading. So has this author, Luke, got your attention yet? God's promise is kept, history handed down, an accurate account, all for the purpose of certainty about Christ. Should we bow our heads and pray? Oh, Father, thank you that you are the great author, the author of history and the author of your word. And thank you that you've chosen to speak to us through human authors like Luke. 
And Lord, we pray that the Bible to us would be a treasure that we want to open, that we want to study, and we want to meet you in it. And we pray, whoever we are this morning, whether Christian people are still not convinced, that you might just help us to be certain about Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.